everyone. Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. Uh, so folks, uh, back by popular demand, I have my good buddy here, Benjamin Schaefer from Christchurch. Welcome back to the program, Benjamin. A pleasure to be here with you again. So you got, uh, I'm just looking, I'm kind of jealous of you, dude. Uh, I'm in Florida and it's very nice, but boy, <laughs> what a background you got there, dude. Yeah, we got uh, the wonderful hills around Alpine, Utah. I just uh, had to leave work a little early for this interview, and I thought, well, let's just go out there and sit down outside somewhere. <laughs> so uh, I've had Benjamin on three times. Now, I actually have this list prepared months ago <laughs> for my first interview, and um, Benjamin's proven to be such an engaging uh, guest, and I've gotten quite a bit of feedback uh, about him from my various uh, platforms. And a lot of people were also very interested when I had the seven uh, people uh, from Christchurch uh, during their solemn assembly come on and that was that really opened a lot of people's eyes you know and I tell people uh, you know you would after you watch those interviews I don't think you'll have any trouble having any one of those people as a neighbor. <laughs> I hope not a lot of some of the there's some of my favorite people of course so I'm biased <laughs> but, um, but yeah they're great people. So, oh, I did, uh, before we get started, I noticed you reconnected with an old friend uh, on uh, YouTube today via uh, the, the messages, uh, I noticed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I thought it was interesting. He just said, oh, I met him before, but it, there was no picture and there was no name on that YouTube account. So I was like, whoever you are, it's nice to, uh, it'd be nice to see you again, I'm sure. Um, and then he was like, oh, no, it's me, Leonard. And yeah, Leonard and I are pretty close, actually. So we talk on the phone from time to time and... Our families were really close when I lived in Taiwan. And... <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. I, I just saw that like little reunion or whatever happened uh, when you were posting today. So uh, folks, uh, Benjamin um, and I have been in dialoguing for quite a while now. And what I wanted to do is kind of just do like a quick round of maybe I ask a particular questions and uh, about different topics. And then we'll just let Benjamin talk. And then if he feels like he wants to get in depth on a particular subject, I told him, invited him to do that. So uh, I, I don't know. I was thinking maybe I shouldn't because we that's a long list. I, it's got to be like, you know, keep them coming. And I'll yeah, yeah, we can do a little bit of both. There. Quick and dirty answers. Okay, you're right. I missed the nuance there. Okay, but we just let's get to the list. You know? All right, let's do it. Okay, so let's the first first question. Um, how accurate do you think the theology is presented in the God Makers cartoon? <laughs> That's a fun one. Um, I, I've got to tell you, the first time I ran into that cartoon, I did not know it was the God Makers cartoon. It just said the Mormons banned this cartoon. And, you know, your YouTube was still pretty young. And I was just like, a Mormon cartoon that's banned? I'm just going to watch it. So I just watched it. And I thought, that was beautiful. I just thought it was gorgeous. I mean, I was like, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the phraseology, a lot of the phrases are just like this little twisting of the, you know, everything's a little bit pejorative. Well, the Mormon Jesus, it says, every time Jesus is mentioned in that video, for example, it says, well, the Mormon Jesus, such and such. It doesn't say Jesus. It says the Mormon Jesus. Um, uh, and actually, there's, there's a great follow-up video to that uh, Godmakers video that I highly suggest you watch, which is a parody of MC Hammer's Can't Touch This, um, that is Mormon Jesus. And it does all of their uh, references to Mormon Jesus in Can't Touch This and turns it into a little dance. It's hilarious. Um, so yes, I, I recommend that to everybody. It's on YouTube. You're already on YouTube. Go look at it. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, so folks, it's, it's, it's so interesting because in many ways, it's very, 
the, the God Makers cartoon is not reflective of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, uh, the headquartered yeah. in, in, in Salt Lake, but it's more reflective of your actual worldview and doctrinal it's standpoint. Not, the animation is terrible. The theology is not terrible. Uh, the phraseology is terrible. The content isn't terrible. So yeah, in general, I think it's, it's kind of fun. I kind of liked that cartoon. I'd like to remake it by changing some of the, like I said, the needling that was in there. Um, there's, but uh, the theology isn't terrible. I mean, for example, they, they try to make everything pejorative. Um, when they bring up Satan or Lucifer, they say, Lucifer is the brother of Jesus Christ, the son of God, you know? Well, okay. We as Mormons do believe that God, angels, devils, humans we're all of the same ontological type we do view that ontology as being that we are one one kind of being um the same kind of being that's not to say though that uh we're gonna make some big deal about how they're brothers man it's like what do you mean by brothers that's just a way of them trying to make it sound like our jesus is some kind of devil and that they're really tight man uh when all they really mean is that yes, in Mormon theology, the question of ontology is answered in a different way. That's that's all that's really about. But you know, they try to turn it into a, a pejorative thing. So, so in in the Godmakers movie itself, they actually feature this quote unquote Mormon prophet named Art Beulah. Uh, <laughs> they call him a Mormon prophet. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about that guy? Because I remember running into him about ten years ago on YouTube. You know, I have never run into him in person. Um, I do know that he is one of those really extreme, really transient types. I think he's actually literally been a transient, like homeless at times. Kind of, you could think of him, uh, what's the evangelical equivalent would probably be one of those slightly crazy street preachers where you're like, there's some street preachers, you know, that are very respectable, but there's some street preachers where you're like, whoa, they're out here because they're crazy. And that's kind of our, our, our Beulah. Um, Art Bullah is sort of, he, he claims to be the one mighty and strong. That's a prophecy in the Doctrine and Covenants that one mighty and strong would set in order the house of God and the church of God and arrange by lot the inheritances of the saints. Um, my sect believes that that is Joseph Smith that's being referred to. Uh, he thinks it's referring to himself and that he's somehow going to make everything great, that his preaching, his street preaching, for example, is going to be so effective, so powerful by the power of God, that he is going to single-handedly bring all the theologies of all the Mormon churches, all of the Christian churches, everyone is going to come together and unite behind his leadership, and he's going to bring about the new Jerusalem on the earth, is basically his take on it. So yeah, he's pretty crazy. But you know, he wrote a couple of things that ended up on the internet, and interviewing him on the Godmakers is, of course pretty sketchy thing to do it, it's basically uh sorry arts if you ever watch this um he's just not he's just not well respected or really much of a leader uh, it's not like he's when we say he's a prophet when they say he's a mormon prophet it's not like he's the leader of any legitimate mormon sect as far as i'm aware as far as i'm aware he has no any he does not have any actual disciples for example he doesn't have any actual ministry he doesn't have any actual congregations he just um he goes out there and he preaches and some of the stuff he says is well crazy by most people's standards and that's probably why he doesn't have a church 
So the Lafferty brothers, uh, of course, they thought one of them thought he was the one that wanted mighty strong. Um, it's yeah. interesting to me because a lot of, from my understanding, a lot of your um, fundamentalist sects don't think it was Joseph Smith, but believe that there is a future one in Mighty Strong that's supposed to appear. Um, how did your yeah, I think there are maybe 50-50, but... Oh, it's yeah, a 50-50 then, then split. Of course, then, then, of course, the Lafferty's, I mean, again, talk about crazy. I mean, literally, murderously insane. And once again, didn't really have any followers, alienated everyone they communicated with, then they went out and started murdering people, and now they're in prison for life, thank goodness. So... Once again, you know, not exactly representative of the faith, in my opinion. And so that's why I, I find, did you know that they're coming out um, pretty soon? I think it's coming out in March. They're coming out with a series. Yeah, um, Under the Banner in Heaven. The Banner Heaven. Yeah. And um, the Lafferty's, of course, uh, they feature quite prominently in that. And that, that once again, seems pretty unfair um, because they were very marginally Mormon. I mean, I suppose that they're more, they did have a brand of Mormonism that they felt motivated uh, in their evil, to some degree, they felt motivated by their religious views. But, oh my goodness, it's it's a really weird brush to paint Mormonism with. Um, there, I'm sure there must be, there must be crazy people of all faiths at some point who commit crimes and say, well, you know, I think God will forgive me for that, or I think God wanted me to, or maybe it's all for a purpose. You know, that's, that's the other thing you try, you try not to say to anybody who's grieving or has suffered some terrible tragedy is, well, you know, I'm sure that God had a reason for this. It, it, can, it can be really, really heavy and awful to blame God for every evil thing that happens in people's lives. Um, and that could get us into predestination versus and the election of grace and all that sort of thing um but i just feel like you know it's um sociologically at least even whatever your theology is on destiny um sociologically it's a pretty heavy-handed and kind of a rude thing to do i think hmm. to um to try to say oh well your whole theology is tainted now because someone in your history did some heinous crime you know uh, Catholics. I think the Catholic theology is beautiful. I think Catholic liturgy is beautiful. I don't judge it by the worst uh, excesses of the Inquisition. Hmm. Interesting. Know? I don't view all of all of Catholicism based upon that. Okay. Well, uh, I want to get back to you talking about other Christian groups, but um, one of the things the Lafferty brothers used to do was get drunk on their communion wine, wine frequently, and I know that a lot of <laughs> fundamentalists use wine. Yeah. And I was surprised when I interviewed uh, the. Uh, David Patrick, uh, uh, he mentioned that you guys practice the word of wisdom. That kind of makes you a little bit unique within Mormon fundamentalism. Uh, kind of explain the process of that. So within Mormon fundamentalism, there are a lot of groups that feel like, look, the, the word of wisdom itself, uh, which is found in our canon in section 89, right? Uh, Doctrine of Government section 89 uh, starts by saying that uh, these are words of wisdom not to be given by commandment or constraint. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of Mormon fundamentalists especially have interpreted that to mean that it's basically a sin to make the word of wisdom some kind of litmus test, some kind of worthiness test of whether or not someone's a legitimate Mormon. Um, what it is, is it's supposed to be good advice. It's not supposed to be something that will limit your agency um, or cause division or be a test of worthiness or faithfulness. Um, and so for that reason, there's just a lot of pushback against treating it too seriously in the Mormon fundamentalist groups, because a lot of them have already been handled 
uh, by the church courts for things like apostasy. And the last thing they want is people being more judgmental once again, because they view that as a very judgmental thing. Um, I feel that it's still a worthy thing. It's still an important thing. The word of wisdom is still a revelation from God telling us how it is that we can run and not be weary and walk and not faint. How it is that we can, as a people, be recognized as the children of Israel. He says, um, those who observe these sayings, the angel of death will pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. Um, those are really great blessings. Essentially, it's like a sign between us and God. If, if I'm offered something that violates the word of wisdom and I choose voluntarily to not do those things, to not partake of those things, then God says he's going he's gonna to recognize that. Um, and so I don't know if I view it so much as like a commandment, like, like if you violate it, God's angry with you or God will condemn you as much as I think of it as like a, like almost like a secret little code between me and God, where when I choose beans instead of meat, because by the way, it says to eat meat sparingly in the religion. When I choose some other form of protein for my meal and I don't eat as much meat, um, it's almost like, hey, God, um, thanks for the advice. And God's like, hey, hey, you know, um, it's like that, like that little meme of the happy Jesus with the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, hey, man, um, I appreciate that. You know, it's like um, a, a simple, small little thing that we can offer to do to remember God in our daily lives. And so. Um, yes, it's it's true. In Christ Church, we do take the word of wisdom far more seriously. We have a temple recommend. Well, for one thing, we have a temple. Uh, not all churches have that either, but we have a temple recommend question about the word of wisdom. Um, and our observance is a little bit different than anyone else's that I know of in that we do not uh, eat pork products, for example. Mm. Um, and of course, that's based upon the fact that it says right in Leviticus um, you know, like Leviticus chapter 11 talks about a lot of clean and unclean things. Um, and we try to eat clean things. Now, this, uh, isn't necessarily to say that we follow the Ashkenazi rabbis or the Talmudic rules about kosher laws. Um, we may at some point in the future, I don't know, maybe we'll come to the similar conclusions, but at the very least, the Lord says that swine's flesh and blood, things like that are an abomination to him. And so we don't partake of those things. And fact, we don't really see the New Testament as encouraging the partaking of those things either. Uh, For example, uh, Paul uh, says twice not to partake of blood. So we do take that quite seriously. Um, But and we also avoid caffeinated beverages, soda pop and things like that. You know, uh, a lot of our members don't don't partake of high fructose corn syrup um, just because of the excesses of our age, essentially. and so, so yeah, on top of that, we, we do those other things that are maybe even more strict than some churches. And yet in other ways, and this is my, my difficult personal admission, is that I'm not always faithful about always doing the word of wisdom exactly as I've been instructed by my church. Um, but I think that the difference is, is that we're not judgmental in the same way. It's not, it's not necessarily a matter for which you'd lose your temple recommend as much as it's a matter that we want to have more of the spirit of the Lord. And this is one of the tools that we can use in order to remind ourselves of God and bring those things of the spirit into our lives. So, you know, since we're just talking about the subject, I have a neighbor who is uh, a messianic Christian who's affiliated with the Hebrew roots movement. And he actually um, had a 
a couple of questions. He 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 had, he pointed out to me. Um, oh, he he wrote out a list and I misplaced it. Um, but he quoted uh -oh. a verse. He, he, well, I have one list. I forgot the other. He quoted okay. a verse in Leviticus that says that the uh, Sabbath observance is an everlasting everlasting covenant. Um, yep. Basically, um, and and so the question he would have for you. Because it sounds to me that you guys are kind of moving in that direction, we and we talked about it briefly at, at our thing. Is um, why don't you guys practice the Sabbath as understood in the uh, uh, in the Torah and, and and such? Well, I think that in one sense we do. Now, I don't want to get into a, an argument with Ellen White about this or any of the people who take this really, really more literally than I do. Again, I don't think that my fundamentalism necessarily means literalism. Um, my fundamentalism is just shorthand for the fact that we don't excommunicate polygamists or that we hold fast to traditional um, doctrines of the LDS faith. Uh, however, there is that interpretation of fundamentalism that encourages people to be highly literalistic about things like the Sabbath. There was never really a time in the Restoration yet where there's been a revelation saying that we have to uh, refrain from work on Saturdays, specifically what we call Saturday on our calendar. We do observe one day in seven as a day of rest. And we do consecrate our Saturdays. We do have a revelation that says uh, where the Lord calls us to build up his kingdom instead of our own. And so in our church, one of the, our practices, for example, and some of us would consider this a violation of the Sabbath instead of a good thing. Um, but one of our practices is that we consecrate every Saturday to building up the kingdom of God. And so that means that we, all of our work parties. So for example, yes, we do use tools. For example, we do work, but we don't work for ourselves on Saturdays. We work mm. for God. And so um, we do consecrate you know, two days and seven to God. One is a day of rest and one is a day of work. Uh, but yeah, sometimes that literalism, I think, uh, isn't really our thing. What we really believe in is, is, is in continuing revelation. We want to obtain more revelations from God. So, you and know, as we do, we're obedient to those, but I, we don't yet have a revelation saying that a Saturday Sabbath setting them. So I'm, I'm curious, because you say within the Restoration, there really hasn't been the idea of Sabbatarianism. What about the Strangites? Have you, the Book of the Law of the Lord um, with James J. Strang, uh, have you looked into the, some of their stuff? No, I, I have looked into some of it, and I've read some of it. I don't want to misrepresent the, my Strangite brothers and sisters. Um, and yet, uh, it seems to me like there's lots of Strangites. Uh, you know, in a, large, a large part of the following of Strang, after Strang was, was murdered, martyred, I suppose, um, went into the reorganization. And of course, they've continued to worship on Sundays as well throughout mm -hmm. their history. So it's a little bit hard to say. Well, just a reminder, folks, it is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They don't have the hyphen and it's a capital D. I don't, I just want to make sure that I refer to them in their correct name. Uh, That's right. Their correct name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yep. So, um, <laughs> Uh, I, I have a quick question for you. So my, my Hebrew roots friend, he actually, uh, are you familiar with uh, a Torah portion, doing a Torah portion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I was also just uh, involved with actual regular conservative reform and Orthodox synagogues at one point, just because I wanted to know more about Judaism. So he wanted um, to know if you had, if you had know your Torah portion. 
we do not actually do a regular Torah or Hav Torah portion. I get on the Chabad website and use their um, use their their resources fairly often, though, and it's kind of fun to go over the different portions for each each date, the Torah and Hav Torah. But um, but as a church, that's not a regular practice for us. So he actually did uh, Joseph Smith Jr.'s Torah portion, and fun. it was interesting because it actually his the, the the uh, the verse that it comes up is Genesis forty four eighteen through forty seven twenty seven. That has to do with Joseph in Egypt. Cool. Has has anybody have you known of anybody that's done Joseph Smith's Torah portion? Joseph Smith's Torah portion. You mean using the Joseph Smith translation? No, using um, looking up the what scripture verses correspond with the birth the date of Joseph Smith's birth. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, that's really nice, though. I think that sounds neat. So, I mean, there's all kinds of neat parallels that you could draw there, though, of course. And after all, one of the prophecies um, that we believe in Genesis, this is Joseph Smith translation, Joseph Smith translation, Genesis chapter 50. Uh, but uh, those evangelicals who are on are going to be like, wait a second. What do you mean chapter 50? There's no chapter 50. Anyway, Joseph Smith translation, um, Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Joseph prophesized um, in front of uh, with Ephraim and Manasseh there and with Jacob during that that moment where there's all the blessings. And he talks about how there will be a seer in the latter days named after him that will come through his line. And we believe that, of course, again, that's Joseph Smith talking about Joseph Smith. The way people generally look at that is that Joseph Smith put himself into his translation of the Bible. Right. Because there's a prophecy about there being a future Joseph. Well or someone called after the name of Joseph. Uh, and yeah, we, I, I think that's great. That'd be, there'd be super great parallels there. Yeah. It, it was very <laughs> interesting. So you got, you got my friend doing Joseph Smith's Torah portion for you all. So I found that yeah, interesting. Well, uh, that, that might be something we should do. Like, uh, you know, put that out on our website and we'll see if we can't put that into our little uh, Christchurch curriculum. I bet we, you know, that'd be fun, you know, and then every week we read it, read our Torah portion and we do it in the Joseph Smith way. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about some social issues. Um, what do you think yeah. of, of if somebody was um, of the LGBTQ community and they mm -hmm. wanted to become a member of their church, would they be welcome? Yeah. In fact, it's happened multiple times. We have LGBTQ members of Christ Church. Um, the thing that's a little bit tricky is that we aren't, um, we're not likely to change our theology over it, though, unfortunately. At this point, like, you know, if people are concerned, well, what about having a gay temple marriage ritual for gay couples, for example? We don't have, we don't really have a spot in our theology for that. And I apologize uh, if that is hurtful to anyone. But that's that's where our theology is. Our uh, Mormon theology, especially classical Mormon theology, and like we maintain in Christ Church, it's extremely heteronormative. Um, and we just have to face that. We don't even view God as just a genderless being or even just as a father, uh, but we don't view him as a single parent. We view God as the divine union of male and female, that there's a heavenly mother um, and so forth. And so, yeah, it's, it's extremely heteronormative. Our whole theology is. And so I don't, and our entire reason for existing as a church is to maintain and keep all of the laws, rights, and ordinances of the gospel, all of the ceremonies, all of the practices in their original and pure form. 
so we're not we're not innovators in that sense. We're not going to go out and change our theology or change our practices in order to accommodate any movement or group of people. Um, I, you know, it makes me wonder if we can't, uh, if I shouldn't have asked one of them to get on for a question like this, mm. you know, so they can give their perspective. We had a convert um, not too long ago that I've been working with ever since he came into the church. And he's been a really important uh, leader, a, a great missionary for us. And uh, a great translator for the Spanish language. Um, he's he was openly gay long before he joined Christ Church, and you know that was that was one of the big issues for him. Was wait a second, if I come into Christ Church, how is that going to affect me? Um, and yeah, we do have that basically that expectation that either he will marry heterosexually or he will remain celibate rather than have a, a homosexual relationship, which we would consider inappropriate. Hmm. Now, at the same time, these questions have made me wonder more about this and, and explore the, the, the possibilities more. Theologically, where does this fit in? And there is a surprising amount of help from an uncanonized vision that we don't view as canon or scripture either, but gives an interesting perspective on it, and that's the Mosiah-Hancock vision. Mosiah Hancock was one of the early Mormon pioneers, had a vision uh, in which he saw kind of the Mormon plan of salvation played out. And in that Mormon plan of salvation, as it was played out, he saw the souls, uh, the pre-mortal life uh, as we prepared to come to the earth uh, and so forth. And one of the things he saw in that vision of the pre-mortal world was he saw, he said, um, and I'm going to, it's probably a paraphrase, but it's pretty close to a quote. I'll just have to do it off the top of my head. He said, I saw many men who had no interest in their, in their females and would go off hand in hand as men are sometimes wont to do. Now, of course, this is in the 1800s and there wasn't all the same terminology or understanding of, of homosexuality, but I felt like he was probably directly addressing it, which is interesting because homosexuality, regardless of what some people say, is almost such a non-issue. Like, where is it addressed? You know, in the Bible, some people will say it's well, it says here that it's a sin for man to lie with man. Um, those prohibitions end up being fairly weak, and it certainly doesn't address it as a major social issue the way that people feel about it today. It's not like the, it's not like there was huge swaths of the population saying, yeah, but what about me? What about my life? What about everything I've ever wanted? What's going to happen to me? Right. This is not something that. Um, which is interesting. People say, well, is it gay erasure? Were there actually fewer homosexuals in other ages? It's kind of hard to say. I mean, it's, it's something that's not addressed much. Um, in Rock Waterman, in his Pure Mormonism blog, did a whole article uh, where he wrote about how he felt like uh, Mormonism doesn't even address the question at all. Um, like I said, there's, there's, there's this massively heteronormative theology and there's a set of ritual, and there's a lot of those things that we're not going to change. We're not going to change any of that for anybody because we believe that God makes those rules. We don't make those rules. Um, we're not going to, the truth doesn't change. But uh, why isn't it addressed more? If this is a major issue for people's lives, why isn't it all over the Bible? Why isn't it all over the Book of Mormon? Why isn't it all over the Doctrine and Covenants? Instead of barely being mentioned, maybe? And Jesus never even talked about it. 
And Jesus never even talked about it. If this was literally like life or death, the most important issue of heaven or hell, the way people often want to make it out now, you'd think you would have talked about it a lot. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's made me think about those things. And I, I guess what it's come down to me, and I don't know if that I can speak for my church on this, but I can speak for myself. And that is, I feel like maybe some people are born that way in the sense that even in the pre-mortal life, I can see that vision being true of Mosiah Hancock had that, that there were men who had no interest in women and they wanted to be together and they went off hand in hand and that this is what they wanted. This is, if there is predestination, this is what they chose for their life here on the earth. And if that's what they chose, then that's a, that's a choice that they're allowed to make. That's part of the diversity and beauty of having free agency, as we call it, um, believing in free will. Uh, and the Mormon heaven is big enough to accommodate that. Now, it's not the same thing as the celestial glory, where in the celestial glory we talk about how um, we will have procreation and things like that. It's a non-procreative relationship. But there's absolutely plenty of room in the Mormon heaven for there to be gay couples who are happy together, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's just... Uh, not a procreative relationship and and our our theology is so procreative focused you know so focused on those creative powers of god and, and the sacredness of them and yet i have to recognize heaven has lots of room for people who are going to be single or friends i don't see any reason why they can't be friends interesting uh so let's talk about abortion what uh what is your view, but also your churches and Mormon fundamentalism in general, how do they view abortion? Abortion is usually viewed as being akin to murder. Um, and I think that that is definitely the case. Um, my personal view as well is that it's a form of shedding innocent blood. And the Bible is very clear in many places about the terrible judgments of God upon those who shed the blood of the innocent. Um, and there's plenty of places where it talks about how the Lord's vengeance, that it, the vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? And that the Lord's vengeance will be upon those people who shed innocent blood. Uh, there's many places, including, uh, let's think about in the book of Revelations, it talks about the blood of the martyrs cries out from under the, under the altar of the temple of God before the Lord, crying out to God, how long, O Lord, will we cry unto thee for vengeance? And yet we still have no justice, right? Um, I think one of the reasons why we're Mormons are even more informed into this way of thinking than Christians are, I think, because of our view of the premortal life. Again, it's not a potential life. It's an actual life. It's an actual life that has existed in the bosom of God from all eternity. The soul that is being destroyed, the person who's being killed in an abortion from a Mormon sense is an actual person with an actual personality and they've existed since before the foundations of this earth were laid before this world was created they already lived in the presence of god and they had and they already had their agency they already have acted they've already lived in a pre-mortal life for eons of time what's happening is they're being robbed of the chance to come into this world why um, would somebody in the pre-mortal existence choose that fate Oh, I don't know that they would choose that fate any more than we choose any of the other consequences or karma or anything else that happens to us. I don't think they would necessarily choose that fate. And I don't think it's necessarily set in stone that the mother has to make that choice or the doctor has to make that choice. 
Um, now, I think the really thing that's tricky is that this does go to the big questions of the quickening and things like that. When exactly does the spirit enter the body or when exactly is that body that person? And I think in my church, a lot of people do take that uh, life begins at conception view. I don't know that I do personally. Um, I guess I would probably assume that you're looking at like six to eight weeks is what I would I would guess. Um, would when I would say no that there's a there's a separate life that's there. Um, definitely. Um, for example, uh, this has led to big debates about things like in vitro fertilization. If you if you take some eggs and some sperm and you mix them in a test tube and you try to see if you can get it to implant, you try to see if it'll even split. You try to see if the if the cell will even even take splitting. Um, I don't see all of those as deaths necessarily, right? The, a cell can't be the same thing as a man. Um, but since we do believe in life before birth, I do think that we take it very seriously, um, the questions of abortion. And um, to, to bring this back to something very, very specific to us that is also very controversial, so I hope that people will bear with me because this is the quick answer session. Um, there is something in the temple ceremonies called the Oath of Vengeance that has often been um, talked about and people really don't like in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Mormon circles, because they view it as as unworthy in some way. I view it as a very central and important theme of the endowment, actually a very beautiful thing. Uh, it's basically the same thing as the prayer of peace or any other practice in which we look forward to the coming of God. The oath of vengeance is that we will pray and never cease to pray to God that he will pour out his vengeance upon those who shed innocent blood. That's, in a nutshell, what the oath of vengeance is, that we will pray that God's vengeance be poured out upon those who shed the blood of the innocent, and that we will teach this to our children and our children's children of the third and fourth generation. Now, there's a lot of symbology in there. It talks about how the Lord's judgments are poured out upon those who hate him to the third and fourth generation and things like that. What does all that mean? I, I believe what it really means for me as a believer is that I shouldn't just be passively hoping that Jesus returns someday. I should be actively praying, hoping for, looking forward to the type of world where the innocent are avenged. And this kind of a vengeance from God is justice. It means that they'll be restored. It's the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of the millennial world. It's the hope that every tear will be dried, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ, that we'll be able to rejoice with him as he reigns in peace on the earth. And that puts an end to war, that puts an end to violence. Well, as we look at those, at those aspirations, many of us view that as looking to an end of abortion. Because abortion is, once again, a shedding of the blood of the innocent, a terrible tragedy, because every, every single abortion is a horrific tragedy. You know, even my, my super liberal friends who believe absolutely that abortion is an important right uh, for women and that, that abortion is necessary at times, even for them, even they, when you really ask them, most of them, even them, even they admit that every abortion is a terrible tragedy because every abortion represents a time when someone felt that murder was the only way out. That's really heavy stuff. That's really a terrible, terrible prospect. 
And so when I pray the oath of vengeance, which I do, I pray every day, I pray constantly, I, I, I never cease to pray that God's vengeance will be poured out upon those who shed innocent blood. What that means for me is, is my hope that we could be in a world where killing will no longer be necessary. There will be no war. There will be no persecutions. There will be no abortions because they won't be necessary anymore. Just a quick reminder, when, when did they take out the Oath of Vengeance out of this temple ceremony in Salt Lake? Was that in the 1920s or? It was, it was somewhere between 1904 and 1923, and probably it was simply inconsistently applied between 1904 and 1923. It started being that some of the temple presidents didn't want to do it because they denied it in front of Congress in 1904, the Reed Smoot hearings. Um, one of that was one of the big issues because they're saying, "Wait a second! If you're praying for vengeance upon those who shed innocent blood, what about us? We shed the blood of the prophet Joseph Smith. Are you praying for blood upon, praying for God's vengeance to be poured out upon us? You know." And I think the the honest answer would have been, "Well, yes. Any of you who consented to the martyrdom of the prophet, just like anybody who consents to the martyrdom of any saint uh, who dies for their faith, yes, God's vengeance is on you. Good luck, God. God." will not be mocked. God's vengeance comes upon all. God's judgments fall upon everyone. Um, but they, they didn't want to be bold about it. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? No, I don't know what he's talking about. You know, they just, they just hammed it up really badly. And so from then on, they really stopped doing it as often, but it really wasn't until 1923 that it was not in the script. So um, moving on, uh, what kind of role do women play in Christ's church? Do they have any ecclesiastical uh, authority or any role to play? Um, can you have the role of deaconess, which is in the Bible, uh, that kind of thing? Um, absolutely. There's a lot of roles for women in Christ's church. Um, you know, we never had to fall into the same traps. I, I'm going to call them misogynist traps that the LDS church did. Um, and one of the things that was tricky with that is that uh, getting rid of the women's priesthood for the LDS church was part of them trying to get rid of polygamy. Polygamy reminded women that they had specific roles and leadership roles that had to be performed. And getting rid of polygamy, the easiest way to do that was to try to be like everybody else in America. We were trying to out America, out America the Americans or out mm -hmm. patriot, be, be the best patriots ever. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that they tried to do was make sure that uh, any misogynist or gender role things that were being done in America at the turn of the century that we adopted those as much as possible to prove that we could do it too. Um, well, let's face it, America back in the turn of the century was a very sexist place. And so Mormons also were jumping on that bandwagon trying to do that. So uh, for example, there's things like uh, the confinement blessing that is the, where women anoint a woman for childbirth. Um, there are roles for women specific to polygamy as well, such as the law of Sarah or the role of a Sarah in a family. Um, and then there's other things too, where the LDS church tried to just kind of cut women out of everything. Women, even now, as far as I understand, you can't be the executive secretary and be a woman. You can't be an accountant for the church and be a woman. You can't even be a non-member auditor working for an accounting firm that is hired by the LDS church that is not LDS people. When they do an audit, they insist that only male auditors work on their audits, which is crazy to me. 
right? They're not even Mormons. Why on earth would you like try to cut women out of everything having to do with, we don't have any of those things going on. So for example, the secretary of the first presidency that we have all sustained is a woman in Christchurch. And in general, when I have a question about tithing, how to pay, when to pay, what to do, I usually go to her. Uh, she's not the only one, of course. There's people in the bishopric who can take care of those things. But um, but yeah, I've paid my tithing directly to a woman many times. And that's a form of deaconess uh, type function functionality because of the way we view that that calling is that a deacon's role is primarily custodial in that sense. It's to to care for sacred things, to um, to minister to the temporal wants of the members and to make sure that uh, all of those things like the money and the building and the things like that get taken care of. And a lot of that is done by a deaconess essentially in our church, except she's actually a high priestess for us, um, who's the executive secretary of the first presidency. Um, and then of course, we also have things like our temple worship where there's a matron or high priestess of a temple who um, ordains other women and with those women ordains um, and blesses, washes, anoints, and pronounces blessings by the power of the priesthood onto other women. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of different roles like that for women. I do think that that should and could expand more than what we're currently practicing, uh, simply because some of our current practice is also informed by tradition. And some of that tradition really has been very, very nervous about women in the priesthood. Now- so that's not to say, though, they don't hold the same callings. It's not like, let's say the bishopric is empty. And they're like, well, who will be the next bishop? And we're praying to the Lord to find out who the next bishop will be. I think we'd be pretty shocked if we all felt that the Lord was telling us to ordain a woman to that role, because that's a man's role. So there are men's roles and there are women's roles, and the twain don't meet. A man cannot serve in a woman's role, and a woman cannot serve in a man's role. So there are still gendered roles. So... Uh... You know, D. Michael Quinn um, came up with the idea or did his research and said that basically the priesthood was conferred to Emma and the, and the, and the Relief Society by Joseph. Is that what you had, uh, believe as well? Because you used the term oh, high yeah, priestess. It's, it's a matriarchal priesthood in that sense instead of a patriarchal priesthood. And it is a form of priesthood, but we just don't see them as uh, the same priesthood. They're two different roles and they're two different priesthoods. So do, are you... are the, our other fundamentalist groups have the role of high priestess, or is this what makes you guys unique? We're pretty unique in that we're not the only ones. There are others that have roles for women, um, but but generally, no. Most of them are going to be like, what? You guys are apostates when they hear that, because, uh, again, most of them have uh, fallen into what I just consider to be a trap, and that is... Um, trying to be traditional sometimes means adopting traditions that I don't believe are actually true gospel traditions, true gospel principles. And so they, they can fall into that and say, oh yeah, well, I never heard of that before. We're not going to do any of that and, and try to, you know, clamp down on it. But hmm. you have some very unique ideas uh, and opinions. If I were to call you a progressive fundamentalist, would you be offended by that? I'm not offended by that, but uh, I'm also not as shy of it politically because I'm a little bit of a left-leaning libertarian. And so the term progressive isn't necessarily offensive. <laughs> After all, uh, what we want to do is progress until we have Zion. We want to progress until we have the New Jerusalem. So um, a lot of Mormon fundamentalists are more backward looking than Christchurch is in general, just because they're trying to do what the old timers did. They're trying to keep that alive. They're trying to keep 
you know, if Wilford Woodruff did it, it's good enough for me. And I'd say, well, look, not to fault Wilford Woodruff, what he was doing was right, but let's do better because they didn't build the city of New Jerusalem. They didn't establish Zion. They didn't usher in the millennium. They, Jesus Christ did not come to the temple of Zion and begin his millennial reign during their time. And maybe that's partly because we didn't build Zion up from beneath well enough for it to come down from above. So let's succeed. And if we're going to do better than them, than, than past generations, we need to be open to more and more revelation so that we can continue to progress and do more. So, yeah, absolutely. So, of course, you got latter days saints, the idea that we're living in the last days, the end times. If you had to place a bet or whatever um, of Jesus coming back within the next 10 years or next thousand years, which one would you put your money on? <laughs> I want it to be the next 10. I want it very much. We have a lot of work to do. Our belief in Christ church is that we're basically already in the millennial time. Um, I mean, maybe you think of this in maybe the hippie or new agey sense of like the age of Aquarius. It's trying to come in. The millennium is trying to come in right now. But we do have to fulfill certain prophecies before that happens. There's a lot of work to do. And I don't know how ready we are as a people. How pure are we? How, how prepared are we to build a new Jerusalem? And, and I know that some of that will happen through the process. I'd like it to be in, I'd like it to be in the next 10. And I do expect greater upheavals in the world within the next 10. I am not, I'm a bit of an apocalyptic uh, believer. I, I believe that there are bigger and bigger problems that are likely to come. However, might be more than 10. Okay. If it's been, if I would, I would say that from my perspective, if I could travel through time and it doesn't happen in the next thousands, that would be a real challenge, a real challenge to my faith. Um, now this does lead into one other really different view that we have. We do believe that we could fail. A lot of churches rest, I think, dangerously comfortably in the belief that they often have that it'll all work out. Jesus will set everything straight. It'll all get worked out. We believe, on the other hand, that we can fail. And that essentially, if, we, if, if, um, if as the judgments of God are poured out, and as we receive every opportunity to follow God, we do believe that we have enough free agency that we can choose not to. And if we, as people of the earth, fail to build the new Jerusalem, fail to seek God, fail to want him to rule over us, because, again, we don't believe Christ's kingdom is a, is a rule of force. Jesus isn't going to come and make us be good. Jesus is going to come to us and help us choose what is right. If we do not choose that, then the world may be completely and utterly destroyed, utterly wasted, um, as it talks about at the end of the book of Malachi. And God may have to just start over. Go down into the garden and start fresh. Genesis 1 style all over again. Yeah, that's a very unique teaching. And that is something that's taught in Christ Church. Yes. And so we believe that it's imperative that we do what, that we, that we seek after righteousness. We can't just wait for somebody else to do it for us. Because if we don't live up to our covenant and we don't, build Zion 
and we don't fulfill the promises and the prophecies, then God will just have to try again until he finds a people who will obey him. So define covenant. The covenant. The covenant, people talk about the two-way promise. There's a, um, that's worth looking into. Uh, the two-way promise being that God makes a promise that if we will obey his commandments, that we will receive certain blessings. But it goes deeper than that in my mind. There's something called the Abrahamic covenant, right? Which is God's promise to Abraham that he would establish through him and his seed the path by which all nations would be blessed. And so that's, um, that's another form of covenant. You, uh, when a person was circumcised after Abraham, that man, uh, that child, I guess, was under the covenant. And that covenant was basically the promise that if we would do as God directed, that we would be his people and he would be our God. Um, and yes, we believe it's important to recognize that we are children of Israel. Uh, since we believe in the pre-mortal life, for example, we believe that we were there at Sinai when the law was given in spirit. We weren't born yet, but we were there in spirit. We were already part of the covenant. We were already of Israel even before that day. And that Abraham has that promise with us as well as Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of them are part of that covenant where they say, look, we're going to get this party started, essentially. We're going to help establish this covenant. And then we will come in later times through that bloodline. And then we will fulfill our part of this grand drama of God's purpose on the earth until his mysterious will is fully brought to pass on the earth. Hmm. And so my part, and that is one small part, but it's no less important um, than theirs. And it's just now is my time to try to fulfill my part of that grand drama. And so, so in a sense, what do I think the covenant is? I think the covenant is something bigger than that. It's something about our identity. It's something about our destiny that we were ordained to before the world was to play a role in that grand drama of God's purpose. That's what I think of as being part of the covenant is essentially having that role to play and God saying, okay, I'm going to trust you with this piece, this part of that drama. And when you're born, you're going to be born with a purpose to fulfill that covenant in your time. Um, what about the second anointing? Is that something you guys uh, talk about and, and, and also um, actually do in your um, church? As, as a very sacred thing, we don't talk about it a lot. But it is the crowning ordinance of all the ordinances. Uh, for example, uh, in the temple endowment, you're promised that if you will be true and faithful to your covenants, that the time will come when you will be called up to be anointed a king or queen, priest or priestess. Um, the second anointing is kind of the fulfillment of that. It's the second time, it's the second endowment. And in that second endowment, you then are anointed to be a king or a queen, a priest or a priestess, that God, that you're, that they're saying you, that God is calling you by revelation to be a leader in his kingdom. And so it's a very high ordinance and it's a very much a priesthood ordinance. And uh, since we were talking about women a minute ago, it's worth noting 
the first the last half of that ordinance the highest uh, the highest and most final completion of that ordinance is performed by a woman through her priesthood that she receives and so um, these are some of the promises uh, fulfilled such as it says um, Jesus promises Peter that whatsoever he shall seal on earth will be sealed in heaven whatsoever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven um, Nephi, one of the Nephi's in the Book of Mormon is promised that uh, whatever he says will come to pass. Uh, whether he proclaims that there shall be a famine in the land or whether or not uh, he proclaims that there shall be this or that, that the Lord will fulfill uh, his, what, he, what, he, what he says. Basically, because God knows that he can trust your heart and that by revelation, he's appointing you to be able to go forth and speak his word because your will and his have become aligned essentially. And, and so, yes, it is a very high ordinance and it's not one that we talk about much. Um, and it's not one that's performed often, but it is one that we do perform in our temples. Um, and uh, I've received my first endowments, but I have not received my second endowments. It's usually something also that isn't done just for a man. It's done for a union. Once again, uh, we, the, their family has to be in the same pattern as God's, essentially to be brought to that level where they're chosen and called up to be part of God's family. And so it's usually performed for a man and his wives do that together. Uh, and there are hints throughout the scriptures about this teaching that are worth pointing out. We believe that when Mary went and broke open the, um, the anointing oil and anointed Jesus's head and his feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and uh, Judas said, well, why would you use this spikenard? I believe was the term in the King James. Um, it was worth a hundred pence. It was worth a, a lot of money. Why would you do that? Um, and he said, you know, hold your tongue. She has done this sacred thing for me in similitude and in preparation for my death and burial. Um, we believe that essentially what she was doing was completing those second endowments for Jesus before he died by her matriarchal priesthood. And so those are very sacred things that are very, um, you know, they're, they're hinted at throughout scripture, but they're not, they're not discussed openly because they form part of the mysteries of godliness. So I'm going to be doing a little bit jumping around. I found a couple more social issues I want to talk to you about, but I, I wanted to ask you, um, did Joseph Smith use a seer stone in a hat to translate the book of Mormon? Now, okay, so I've got some friends who are very opinionated about this, and they're all going to be upset because uh, I'm not going to agree or disagree with any of them too much. I see the seer stone as a useful tool. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a great idea. The idea that there are holy objects uh, is, I think, what it comes down to. And the Urim and Thummim, or the lights and perfections spoken of in Scripture and referred to in the translation process, are also stones. They're also sacred stones used by seers. Therefore, by definition, they are seer stones. Urim and Thummim is a Hebrew term. Seer stone is a English term. I think God can be multilingual. I don't think it matters much what you call them. Um, now, the seer stone and the hat thing, though, for the Book of Mormon isn't well documented. There's really only one source that says that's how he did the Book of Mormon. Other people said that he had a seer stone, sure, but he turns out the Book of Mormon with the Urim and Thummim. And some people think this matters a great deal. I think this is a real tempest in a teapot. 
this is a real big fat cake of nothing. Um, it doesn't matter to me very much. He translated it by the gift and power of God. He used stones. Um, what's the difference between a seer stone and a Urim and Thummim? Uh, I can't see why anybody's going to, uh, why it's going to matter too much either way. Um, I think the main thing is, is that people can use it to make it sound really weird. They can, they can make it sound really strange, you know, and, and that is what people are upset about is either they're for or against the book of Mormon being translated by the power of God. And so they're either trying to make it sound really awful and weird, or they're trying to make it sound really awesome. Um, that's all perspective. That's all very, very mortal, temporary perspectives on something that's far grander than our own personal views on it, in my opinion. Um, you know, that's, it's just our opinions, essentially. So, so do you yeah, think I, that, do you think I'm that when he, I'm not sure how much it matters. Okay. So do you, do you think that he actually, when he was looking at the stone, that the words appeared on the stone? Oh yeah, no, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't seem likely at all because then it would be, um, then it wouldn't have been translation. It would have been dictation. And I don't think anybody ever in scripture ever claimed that God gave them dictation, you know, um, can you imagine with some of the oddities in the Bible, if you could have some textual literalists with some of these oddities in the Bible and have them be like, Oh, no, 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 no. Says right here that Isaiah um, was told to misspell that word. Right. God told him to misspell that word exactly like that. There must be a reason. Wow. Is that getting to a level of scriptural literalism that I think is extremely dangerous and irresponsible? Um, really? I think that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. The Lord gave him visions. The Lord gave him understanding. But the words, the exact usage of the words, uh, that depends on Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Smith, the typesetters. All of them had some influence on the exact wording of the Book of Mormon. And that's one of the reasons why there are various textual variants. Um, if God was, was doing it that way, he shouldn't have used Joseph Smith at all, in my opinion. He should have given it directly to the typesetter and told him, Yes, close your eyes and reach into a drawer and the first piece of type you feel, stick it in to your typeset, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it will stand for all time that that typeset is the authoritative version. I don't, uh, it seems a little weird to me. <laughs> um, so since I found myself getting into the middle of the um, uh, battle of where did the Book of Mormon occur uh, debate uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> with uh, having Rob Meldrum on and stuff. <clears throat> and I will, by the way, have somebody coming on to talk about the Mesoamerican model as well. Um, where do you personally... Was that? <laughs> I think Rod is great. He's a good guy. I like that guy. Um, wh where do you or your movement or maybe, maybe answer for yourself, but also answer for Mormon mm -hmm. fundamentalism in general, where would most people fall in on this debate, if it happened, you know, hemispherically, um, in in Baja California, uh, Malaysia, uh, <laughs> you know, North America, uh, Mesoamerica, right. where, where where is the consensus in your church? What do you think, and what do other fundamentalists think? There, there are so many models there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I do think that I generally lean toward the um, toward the Heartland model, Rod Rod Meldrum's model. Just because Joseph Smith talked about the borders of the Lamanites, he talked about the Hill Cumorah, he talked about a lot of things um, as having occurred in certain places. Uh, and I don't know that uh, I'm going to get pushback. Uh, 
Hannah Syriac has, uh, she believes in a mess American model and she's, she, she's quite opinionated on this. Once again, I'm not as opinionated on this, um, as most of my friends are. Um, I think that what it comes down to, uh, for me is that it did happen somewhere. It happened. Now, the exact details as to which of these ancient cities was Zarahemla. Uh, I can wait for the Lord to clear that one up for me. I don't need to know. Um, I lean toward the um, Heartland model, not out of some abundance of evidence, but simply out of the convenience of saying, well, the Hill Camorra is in North America. Something must have happened in North America. At least, at least uh, Joseph Smith lived in North America. Uh, at the same time, I think that one of the other things that you find in scripture is that geography is extremely small, much, much, much smaller than we generally think it would be. Um, geography in the Book of Mormon, for example, seems to center around Zarahemla the same way that geography in the Bible centers around Jerusalem. Folks, uh, we've been having a few uh, audio and video difficulties. Uh, we've got everything resolved. So uh, we were talking about uh, Benjamin's take on which particular model did he think that the uh, Book of Mormon events took place in. And so you're discussing, uh, you're, you're, you're discussing a few things. Maybe just continue with that. Sure. So where I was at was I was about to say, well, what about the Bible? What about biblical geography? Well, it seems to take place in a very, very small area. It pretty much all happened in the Middle East. Okay, there's some of Paul's uh, excursions that make it into Europe, maybe, and things like that with the Pauline journeys and whatnot. Um, but really, there's a very, very small geography for many thousands of years worth of biblical text that happened in a very tiny geography. And even the more expansive geography still doesn't cover hardly any of the world as a whole. Um we have the same problem with Book of Mormon geography. It's probably a very constrained area, first of all, um, that it would have taken place in. And I feel like it's also, once again, a proxy argument uh, for about something else. You know, people who uh, want to argue about Book of Mormon geography either want to disprove the Book of Mormon and say, oh, there is no Book of Mormon geography, and therefore the, the Book of Mormon isn't true. Or, you know, because we can't prove where Zarahemla is, for example. Um, and yet, uh, that doesn't make much sense to me as a method of proof. Uh, one of the reasons for that is, uh, think about this. If the best proof of a, um, if the best proof of a scripture's truth and authenticity was its geography, have I got a scripture you should check out called the Doctrine and Covenants? It mentions places like New York, Boston, and, and Ohio, and I can show you that places like Ohio actually exist. And that must prove that the doctrine in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants is sound doctrine, right? Because I can prove the historicity of it. Well, no, there's plenty of people who aren't going to be Mormon, who aren't going to believe in the Book of Mormon just because I can prove the existence of Ohio, right? Um, and I feel like that's exactly the same thing people are doing with the Book of Mormon. Proving or disproving something about some geography usually has to do with some kind of archeological argument about whether or not they wanna believe in the Book of Mormon's theological claims, it's doctrinal claims. And I just think that's a fool's errand unless everyone's ready to throw away both the Bible and the Book of Mormon and just stick to the Doctrine and Covenants because that's the only one that I know of that consistently has reliable geographic data. <laughs> and that's only because it's super recent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool, that's a great take on your part. So I'm just gonna, 
throw a few more uh, social issues and then um, um, then we'll, we'll, we'll start wrapping things up. Um, well, a couple of, well, one thing, the show, Big Love, did you watch it? Was it accurate or uh, I what do you think of it? I watched the first episode, a couple in the middle and the last episode. Um, so no, I haven't seen too much of it. First of all, I do have somewhat of an opinion on it. It's a soap opera. Mm -hmm. It's a polygamous soap opera, but it's a soap opera. So Matt, so put yourself in my shoe, uh, someone in my church's shoes. You've never met a monogamist. Ooh, monogamists are so weird. You know, they have their own culture and their own ways of doing things. And I'm so curious about monogamists that I decided to watch some other soap opera. I don't know, Friends or Sex in the City or, uh, or maybe uh, As the World Turns. You know, or one of those. And I decide that's the what the social and private lives of all monogamists must be like that. Mm. Well, obviously, that's very un unfair and unrealistic uh, portrayal. It's the same thing with big loves. Of course, it's a, it's a polygamist uh, soap opera, but it's still a soap opera. It's, not all, it's all about the drama. It's, you know. So did you ever watch the particular episode where they took the road trip to Palmyra, New York? I didn't. It is one of the, it is like the, the best episode in the series. I'll so if you ever if, just watch that, that one. one, it actually, to me, it actually, to me, as a religious believer, portrays religious faith in a very authentic way and mm. in a very beautiful way. And I think there's a particular scene that you'll watch that will touch you. So I just want you to, okay. yeah, check that one out. Um, cool. So creationism versus evolution uh where are you or uh in general are mormon fundamentalists tend to be creationists believe in evolution a combination the age of the earth all that kind of stuff you know, so when i say creation young earth creationism right as um a believer myself i can give you my view and then tell you what some other people think i'm really neither evolution does not work with the adam god doctrine we believe essentially that uh, there is change, and uh, if there's change in natural selection and and all of that, it's it's a degenerative process, not a generative process. It would be destructive rather than constructive. We are descendants of God, and yet we are less perfect than God because we are farther from the source. So I see entropy in the genetic code over the ages an entropy that will probably continue until complete destruction occurs. But I do not see it as a constructive process. That's my personal take on it. So the, is, now, that is that human evolution or biological evolution in general? You're making that, that statement. Would be human evolution, I guess I would say that that would be human evolution. When it comes to biology, I, I view, I think that it all follows the same patterns, the same divine patterns. Um, now that's not to say that I believe the earth is young. I believe the earth is very old. Ge uh, when it comes to geologic um, time, I think that those models are reasonably accurate, uh, personally. Now, I do know some young Earth creationist types that are Mormon fundamentalists who definitely believe in that. Um, and, and I think that there's plenty of room for us to disagree and still view one another as fellow believers. I don't think this is, once again, I, I'm not a big fan of litmus tests, uh, tests of orthodoxy that make an in-group and an out-group. I believe that we can err in doctrine and still be. Oh, uh, Benjamin, you're, you're on mute again. There we go. Yep. That you, was, uh, that was a phone call coming in. I had to okay. get rid of, um, we can, we can disagree on these things and still be fellow believers. Okay. Uh, 
And so I generally view the geologic age of the earth as very old, very ancient. It gives me some sense of just the majesty of God's work and how long it is. Uh, I've, I, I view this universe as a huge, complex thing. It's not just even our one world that um, my faith is big enough, I think, to incorporate aliens and other worlds and ancient times and geologic time going on for billions of years. I think I'm very comfortable with all of that stuff. Um, when it comes to evolution, though, I generally view it as a degenerative, not, a, not as a generative process, a, a destructive rather than a creative process. And so I don't, I don't really believe in biological evolution in the way it's generally taught. Yeah, not, not me personally. Okay. And I think that that's often the case because the moment that you believe in the Adam-God doctrine, you don't believe in human evolution. And the moment you don't believe in human evolution, you start looking for other w ways of looking at the evidence. We have a lot of data about there being different types of animals on this planet at different time periods geologically. And I'm not denying any of that. I don't think that's a lie or something weird. I, I, that's there. It's, it's, it's there. There's plenty of data out there. I do think there's different ways of looking at that data. That's all. A um, couple of quick questions about your church. Do members of your church, uh, are they allowed to serve in the military, vote, and other civic responsibilities? Yeah, um, we are. We all vote, I'm sure. We all vote, probably. I mean, I vote. Um, <laughs> many of us, some of us have served in civic uh, office uh, and things like that. Um, there's no prohibition against any of that. There are many, uh, there are many military veterans in our faith. Uh, there's one... A uh, guy right now on active duty. Um, there's uh, another member of our church who, there's actually a lot of members of our church just because of our location that work at the Tonopah test range and actually do uh, mostly as private contractors, but some of them are feds basically who, um, who train our military or to, who do, who do work in those fields and things like that, you know, with some of those, uh, those important things. They all have to have their security clearances and whatnot. So, I mean, uh, they haven't told me anything and I don't really know what they do out there. You know, it's one of those things where they can't tell exactly what their job is, um, but they, you know, they do a lot of that sort of thing. So it is connected to that. Um, now, me personally, that was actually a struggle. Um, coming into Christ Church, I had a problem with that. I'm a bit of an anarchist. Okay. I'm absolutely a pacifist. My family history goes back to the Bavarian Church of the Brethren, which is somewhat related to the Amish and the Quaker sects mm -hmm. and those yeah. types of people, pacifist religions, right? That's my family history. And I've felt very, very strongly my whole life, I was taught from the youngest age, that it is much better to be a martyr than it is to be a murderer. Um, and so I remember when I turned 18 and I had to register for the draft, for example, I wrote in huge letters, all caps across the entirety of my form conscientious objector when I turned it in. Um, and I do believe that there's an important thread in my Mormon heritage of being a pacifist. However, that is not something my church teaches. And I remember that being a problem for me because I was thinking, well, you know, once again, we kind of hope that when we find a spiritual home, it agrees with us on everything. Well, it turns out, no, the scriptures are actually filled with good, righteous men who did fight. Like Captain Moroni is the first example most Mormons think of in the Book of Mormon. But, uh, you know, David wasn't entirely unjustified by most biblical scholars' views. And there are plenty of others as well. Samson was a judge in Israel, and he slew 
the Philistines and and so forth. So, you know, they're they're Deborah. Deborah, there's a fun one for the women's issues as well. Was a military leader and a judge of Israel. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a struggle of faith for me because I I, I expected, I wanted, and I expected that Christ Church would be a pacifist organization. And it doesn't isn't necessarily a pacifist organization. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't view ourselves as having a higher calling. We do have something more important to do necessarily than joining the military, and that is our missionary work. You only have so many years that you can devote to anything in your life. All of us have limited time, and we view our missionary work as very important. Our temple work is very important. Our consecrated work to build Zion communities is very important. We don't necessarily have time and resources to be dedicating to military service, to civic engagement. We vote, sure, but um, we don't view those things as our higher as our higher callings. We view those things as kind of terrestrial or telestial matters that are therefore of lesser importance. And would so, you, would you ever encouraged. run for office? Yeah, I might. I mean, I don't know. I, I I I would consider it. People tell me sometimes when we have these long. I have I have a lot of long political conversations with a lot of people. And I have been a registered Republican. I've been a registered Democrat. I was a precinct um, committee chairman for the Democratic Party. I went to the Democratic National Convention. I'm a registered Libertarian right now. I've been uh, independent. Uh, the Independent American Party actually asked ah, me to run yep. for Attorney General. Okay. Um, and some of those guys are fun, you know. Uh, so don't get don't. I go to Pork Fest, which is a Libertarian festival. I went there. Uh, uh, in New Hampshire to the Pork Fest uh, this last summer, and pork being short for porcupine, by the way. Right. Um, and because the porcupine is a symbol of the Libertarian Party. So, yeah, I've got various views, and I'm surprised when I talk rationally about policy and what I think is possible and achievable. With It doesn't seem to matter what political persuasion I'm talking to. Most of them say, hey, man, I'd vote for you if you ran. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very, very different once you actually run. I can't sit down and have a reasoned policy discussion with everybody I talk to. That's right. They think it's going to be ugly. You know, well, it's part of Just so you know, I used to be a political consultant and I ran for office myself. So maybe, maybe yeah. I can be yeah, a consultant. Did but did you win? <laughs> uh, I, I did not. I led the ticket. I led the ticket, but I, it was not enough to win uh, the, in that race. Uh, so um, real quick, uh, I guess just to wrap this thing up. Um, how many wives do you have? Zero. Unfortunately, I do not have currently. Well, I mean, I do have an ex-wife, uh, Wendy, uh, and I did divorce. Uh, hope this doesn't come as too much of a shock to anybody. Um, way back in my uh, feminist Mormon housewives phase uh, with uh, Lindsay Hansen Park, I was on a Year of Polygamy podcast, and I talked about how we were supporting each other, and we were. And I do and did still support Wendy. I mean, we had Thanksgiving together this week, for example, you know. Um, she's still a really important part of my life. But uh, no, eventually we did divorce. So uh, and it wasn't my idea. And I don't I don't encourage divorce. I don't really believe in divorce, actually. So to a large extent, I still feel that it's it's obligatory upon me to fulfill my covenants that I made to her. I want her to be cared for and I'm doing everything I can to support her. But, uh, but no, we couldn't continue to live together as husband and wife, unfortunately. Well, thank you for sharing and, that. And she's the only wife I've ever had. 
I've never been with anyone else. So yes, ironically, I am the most monogamous polygamist. I'm, more, I'm far more monogamous than most so-called monogamous because most monogamous believe in serial monogamy. Mm-hmm. And since I believe in eternal marriage, I, I really am the only monogamist I know just about. Interesting. Well, you know, Benjamin, I just want to thank you so much for coming onto the program. We had a little glitch there, but we're going to edit it out as best we can. Okay, we good. had the beautiful scenery behind you. So that was wonderful <laughs> for my audience yep. to see. And then we get the, at least we had the good acoustics you talking in the car. So that works as well. But either way, yeah, I just, uh, I just want to uh, thank you for coming on. Do you have any final words for my audience? Yeah. I mean, uh, gee, this is the fourth one that I've been on, isn't it? So I probably had my say. I probably yeah, had that's my a good say. point. That's a good point. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I guess my final word would just be uh, reach out to me. Try not to judge us. Um, there's going to be Mormon fun moss you'll meet. There's, the, there's a tendency to demonize us because we're different. Um, and I'd, I'd really like a big part of this for me is just having the outreach. I want, I want people to know who are outside my faith that I don't judge you. I don't want to see you burn in hell. I don't want to see you suffer. I don't, uh, I don't think you're a bad person because your faith is different than mine. And I hope you'll extend to me the same grace uh, because we need to build bridges of understanding and, and, and affection and love. And if your church or community or whatever wants to coordinate with ours, we want to do good in the world. We really do. So let's work together and not against each other. Those are some nice, fine words you gave us. Thank you. I appreciate it. So, folks, I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. Uh, Make sure that you uh, hit the uh, uh, notification button to be informed when a new uh, video uh, arrives. Um, Everything, uh, folks, just keep your heads up. We're going to get through this uh, pandemic together um, and just be well as we enter into the holiday season.